Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 130. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Welcome to March. I'm watching the snow melt outside, which means barbecue season is coming, which is good for me and good for you. I am so excited to finally, basically be through this winter. I'm excited to be through what the February, unless we get a real dud when we hit the roulette this month. I, I think it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out this year. Yeah, I should certainly hope so. It, but th- So the spring is sort of weird because on Long Island in New York, you get like these fake springs and you get these fake summers where I kind of feel like we're coming in and out of different worlds, not unlike what you see in Zootopia, which we are going to discuss today, where you'll have a rainforest and then you'll be in the Arctic three hours later. So... I'm I'm excited, but I'm cautiously optimistic. I'll just say that much. That's true. That is New York weather for you. But we're also getting out of it. We're we're dipping out for a few days. Yeah. Can't wait. Just like I can't wait to discuss this film. You and I have have used this movie as the basis of comparison when it comes to world building with so many other movies that in many ways I'm sort of surprised that we went this long without discussing it. However, as as unbelievable as that is, it's almost just as unbelievable to come to the realization that this movie is now celebrating its fifth anniversary. This movie feels a lot newer to me than five years. Yeah, five years sounds like a really long time, but it certainly doesn't feel like it was that long ago. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms and more. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or the Etsy shop and search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co. for all of your straw charm needs. We meet Judy Hops and learn that animals have evolved over time and are no longer defined as predator or prey. Judy has a dream of growing up to be a police officer while her parents prefer she become a carrot farmer like them. Fifteen years later, Judy defies the odds, moves to Zootopia, and becomes the first bunny cop in history, although she is not taken seriously and is assigned to being a meter maid, a job that she excels at, much to the disappointment of the citizens of Zootopia. We also meet Nick Wilde, a sly fox, who will basically lie, cheat, and steal to get whatever he wants, up to reselling popsicles for a profit. After abandoning her post to arrest a criminal on the run, she is reprimanded by Chief Bogo. When Judy offers to help find Emmett Otterton, one of 14 missing mammals, Bogo gives her 48 hours to find him, or else she will be forced to resign her position. Upon reviewing her limited evidence, she realizes that before Emmett went missing, he bought a popsicle from Nick. When Nick refuses to help her, she blackmails him into helping her because he basically admits to tax fraud and she's going to hold that over his head. They find that a limousine picked Otterton up so they track it down and find that the inside of the car is destroyed. Nick and Judy are captured and brought to the home of notorious mobster Mr. Big who is actually an Arctic shrew. Initially set on quote-unquote icing them, he has a change of heart when he finds out that Judy had saved his daughter the day prior. 
we learn that Otterton is a friend of Mr. Big and that he went crazy in the car after Mr. Big had sent the ride for him. He attacked the driver and escaped while screaming about the Night Howlers. While questioning the driver, Judy and Nick watch as he also goes crazy and tries to attack them. When Bogo tries to fire Hops prematurely, Nick stands up for her and they set off to solve the case. We also learn that as a child, Nick was cast out as a predator, so he decided to just live up to everyone's expectations of him. After reviewing traffic camera footage, thanks to the help of Assistant Mayor Bellwether, they track down the missing mammals to Cliffside Asylum, and they see that Mayor Lionheart was behind the whole thing in regards to locking them up, but he covered it up to protect the city, or at least that's what he is telling people. Lionheart is arrested, but no one can figure out why the animals started to go savage, as they call them. Nick is hurt, at least his feelings are, while Judy elaborates on the biology of the predator species during a press conference, and he walks off. Bellwether is named the new mayor and wants Judy to be the new face of the ZPD. But she blames herself for the turmoil and tension between predators and prey in the city, so she resigns and heads home to be a carrot farmer. Back at the farm, she realizes that the night howlers are flowers that are turning predators savage. She heads back to Zootopia, makes amends with Nick, and sets off to solve the case. They learn that predators are being targeted with capsules made from the flowers and that it was Bellwether behind it the entire time. Bellwether is arrested, an antidote is developed, and the mammals are all restored to normal. Nick becomes a member of the ZPD and is named as Judy's new partner. So there's a lot to dissect here because in spite of the fact that this is really a child's movie, you can call it family entertainment, but it really is for kids, right? There is a lot of layers here and a lot of backstabbing and a lot of questions that you need to answer in a very short period of time. There's no doubt that this movie is fun for the whole family, but I kind of feel like this actually leans more towards being geared toward adults because it's so fast-paced. Like, kids are obviously going to enjoy it because of the animals, and there's really fun characters. But I feel like, story-wise, it's definitely more of an adult-themed story. I think once you've seen the film, that's the case. But when the movie is marketed, all you see is that it's a bunny rabbit as a police officer. Fair. So I, I don't think they marketed it as anything more than being a movie for kids. I mean, the, the subject matter... And the layers that we're going to discuss here certainly lend themselves to what you're saying, but I feel like the initial, the initial grab was for children. What I really want to believe about this film is that they finally brought that cut scene from Mary Poppins full circle. The Sherman brothers had written a song called The Anthropomorphic Zoo, where humans were in cages and animals would go and look at them in the zoo. And I kind of feel like this is that full circle take on that original idea. I think so in regards to animals are living as humans, but you obviously don't see any humans in this film. No. So it's, it's a take from it. It's in, maybe it's inspired by, we can at least say that much. All right. So starting from the very beginning of the film, I love how they introduce Judy as a child 
I think she's fun. I think she's endearing. We'll dissect her more as a character as we kind of go on here. But I can't recall a film that started with a character with faux blood. Blood. Death. Within the first 30 seconds and like a lot of it. It's super cute. I love that they did this as a play because you do get that moment from her of the fake death scene. Um, But they could have easily done this as a class presentation where she's just giving the history lesson to give us the backstory. This was way better. And I love the kid that's doing all of the the foley and the music on the side and he's doing all the dun 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 where it's necessary. It's it's so clever. It's really well done. And I think it does more than just set the table for she wants to be a police officer and people keep laughing at her. They take it a step further with what happens next because they're at a carnival. She's still in her police getup from the stage show and this kid, Gideon Gray, who is a fox. And a D. And definitely was picking on her during the show. You see it. You can see that she really doesn't take his garbage that's the nicest i'm 34 and sometimes i forget i need to censor myself i'm high five for me for catching that one (laughs) um (laughs) he's making fun of her while she's performing and then he's picking on sheep at the county fair and he stole their tickets and what i love here is that she stands up for them he claws her in the face and instead of being embarrassed because he goes you just don't know when to quit and then he claws her up she stands up and puts her hat on. And she goes, he got one thing right. I don't know when to quit. And I think it's a compliment to the voice actress because I don't think that was Jennifer Goodwin who did the child voice. I could be wrong, but I don't think it was her. Um, whoever it was that emoted that did a really fine job because sometimes when you get those really sort of um, over-the-top character moments early in a film they have the they they run the risk of coming off as cheesy and you kind of roll your eyes and laugh at it but the way that it's presented here I actually think works for the character and it does not do her a disservice moving forward I'm really glad that you bring this up because I do go back and forth with this one and I do kind of feel like they could have done this whole scene as a flashback. Once she has established herself as a cop, we can see why she wanted to do it in the first place. You definitely need that first scene with the play. That's a given to give you the context of how they're all living together. Um, I love the setup with this scene that you know, her dad's got the sentiment, this anti-Disney sentiment talking about complacency and you'll be happy. I'm surprised that they actually went there with with a statement like that and they actually commit to it. I mean, obviously, Judy's going to go and defy that anyway, um, but I'm surprised they even peppered it in. Um, but yeah, the part where she actually gets attacked by Gideon um, I like that it's a sheep whose tickets were taken. I, you know, going back to that age old, there's there's a, well, it's a fox in the hen house, right? Yeah, but it's it's the same thing. The fox is a it's it's a predator to the sheep as well as it is to the hens, right? Um, but yeah, I'm not sure that we needed to see it right here. I mean, I'm also surprised that they like really went for it, went for it, showing him slap her. Um, 
But I think you're right. Her reaction is what makes this scene pay off because you do have to believe that it's not just her attitude of, well, if I get knocked down, I'm going to get back up. You have to see that she can take that hit because otherwise, yeah, how is she going to progress as a cop? And I, I like that they sort of gave us a little bit more of a basis in reality for that because that that's a hard thing to watch. And I think in any other Disney movie, if a kid gets knocked down like that, it's just going to be like that stick to attitude mm-hmm. that's going to carry them on. Um, so I, I guess... I would agree you do need that. I'm just surprised that they didn't leave her scar. I kind of thought that she would wear that like a a badge of honor and being that they bothered to leave this scene in and not do it as a flashback, like I would think that you'd sort of take that with you. So it's funny that you bring that up because we had seen this movie in theaters when it opened and as much as we enjoyed it and we have the Blu-ray, we didn't watch it again. Um, not because we didn't feel like it. It's just not a movie that we picked up to watch until we sat to do this show. And no, we had watched it once or twice. Then I don't remember it. Maybe Maybe you did. Maybe I fell asleep and you put it on at night and I, I don't, I have no recollection of watching it. Then again, there were a lot of nights where I was getting home at two, three in the morning when I was working in restaurants and you would be far asleep and and I would come home and I would see a DVD would be in you would have watched something perhaps you caught it before I did but the point this is this was also one of those Netflix Netflix stragglers I think yeah after yeah, that was they did the Disney while. Plus deal yeah this one hung around this is my point it had been about five years since I had personally seen this film and the way that they set up the visual with the scratch I thought to myself I don't remember her having scars because they make it they make it seem like it's going to be such a big thing for the character and you're right there really is no payoff for it especially when you hold it up against scar scar from the mm-hmm. lion king we all know he has it you don't really need to know how he got it right cuz you just know he's a badass but um in this case especially because she does want to pursue this career i'm really surprised that they didn't I mean, I know that they gave her purple eyes to make her more kid-friendly and and give her some of that Disney sparkle instead of just making her whole palette gray. So I'm wondering if this was a way to soften her because, yeah, like a a hardcore bunny is not like what comes to mind, even though she is a cop. Um, So I'm wondering if it was really just for the aesthetic that they wanted to keep her cute and cuddly. Yeah, it could be. Fast forwarding now 15 years, they don't waste any time. They get You get that great training montage um, that we've seen in so many Disney films, but it's not cheesy, and they make it work, and they get through it real fast because really what they want to do is get you into Zootopia, right? They don't waste a lot of time showing her get knocked down over and over again and get bullied by the other recruits of the ZPD. The the pacing throughout the movie is very quick, and this is where I think it really shines, because they had an opportunity to drag something along unnecessarily, and they didn't do that here. I do appreciate that they left this as a training montage, because I didn't really need to see her get 
picked on even more throughout her childhood to drive home that she's going to be a cop no matter what. So I think this was clever. Um, I also love once that she is out of training and she moves to Zootopia. This was such a clever way to get the song in. I like that, you know, even though they have a pop star in the film, they got the radio hit with Shakira, but because they worked her into the film as Gazelle, we'd never really seen anything like that done before. So I love that they managed to tie it all together instead of just doing, like, for example, they had Demi Lovato sing Let It Go for the radio hit with Frozen. And instead of separating it, they made it one and the same, especially because then you get to see her scroll through her iPod and some of the band names in there that have turned to animal names were really clever. That's This film has so many Easter eggs like that. I, I love it. Right, because if you think about how Disney has always tried to spin one of their songs from a film into a radio hit, it's always a different recording artist. It's ne- It's almost never pulled directly from the soundtrack of the film. Like, wasn't it Celine Dion that sang Beauty and the Beast? You have the name do it for the radio. Right. Always. But in this case, it is one and the same, and that is sort of a shift for them. But I think part of that is because the Demi Lovato Let It Go did nothing. At the end of the day, it was the Idina Menzel version that gets played on the radio and did get played on the radio. My girl. And has now become a Christmas song, apparently, because snow. (laughs) Um... Well, anyway, I I like that we see the source of the song come up, too. I think that that's important that it doesn't just, you know, start playing. Because if we're going to the lyrics are really great and they definitely play. They they definitely lend themselves to Judy's character. So I'm glad that we didn't just start hearing this song with lyrics out of nowhere. And I think it was just clever that they chose to do it this way instead of scoring it, too. Yeah. Um, and it it really works with the landscape. It does. I love how they leave Bunnyboro, and you've seen this before. You've seen it in Muppets where somebody leaves a small town and you watch the population number dial back, but it's Bunnyboro, so the population just keeps going up and up and up and up. Very funny. Very funny, and th- you, you, you enter this world. You enter Zootopia. I feel like this is where we're going to spend so much time talking about this film because this is where we have referenced this film so many times. The minute that train turns and you see the city and then you start getting into all of the little different areas. I don't want to call them boroughs because that's a Manhattan thing and I we're the only thing we're the only place that calls it a borough but that's also going to get confusing with bunny borough yeah different sections of the city as you see the amazon you see the arctic this is by far the most impressive world building we have ever seen in a disney film i'd almost go so far as to say outside of maybe star wars and the avengers or the mcu i should call it I think this is some of the most impressive world building we've ever seen in cinema, period. I would agree with that, but keeping it strictly to Pixar, I think I'm going to die on the Monsters and Kill. This it's is close. this is a very very close second for me, but Monsters Inc still it it just kind of goes over the top. It's close. It's very very close. I'm I I think this has the edge just because with Monsters Inc 
Monsters, Inc. took the idea of a city and they put funny signs up that made it relatable to monsters. And they changed some advertising and things that are familiar to us so that they could relate it back to a monster. In this case, I feel like they took the concept of there's a city. What can we do with it? And they make it so unique and so different. And I guess my point in that is forget the actual scare floor with the doors, which is incredible in Monsters Inc. When it comes to the actual, when it comes to Monstropolis itself, I feel like if you changed out some of the advertisement and added product placement, a human could live there. I don't get the feeling that a human is going down a hamster tube at Penn Station, though I would love to see it. I feel like Zootopia is so unique and could only take place in this universe, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think we're sort of talking about two different things, because when I'm talking about the world building with Monsters, Inc., I'm also tying that a lot to the story, because they are introducing us to Monstropolis, but they are also developing the story and... and it's that irony of we've taken monsters and and the idea of them scaring and giving it a function. Um, this is just a cool setting. So if we're talking about strictly visuals, this beats Monsters, Inc. But I, I'm talking about just as far as like setting up that jumping off point and where we're going to go. I'm going to give it to Monsters, Inc. But this is gorgeous, and I'm glad that we got to do the entire train ride, that they let us actually experience it, and we never, they didn't pull away from it. I'll give Monsters, Inc. this. They made their world functional, because every kid, every kid was afraid of that monster in the closet or monster under the bed, and they did it in such a way that the Santa Claus did it with Tim Allen, where not all families have a chimney. How does he get in? And it answers that question. You are one child. How does the monster get in your room when nothing's been opened up? They answered that question. So functionally, yes, Monstropolis and everything that they did in Monsters, Inc. uh, was absolutely fantastic. And we gave it its marks when we discussed it. Um, But... I mean, just as far as an aesthetic goes, this is so special and it's so different and it's so unique. I mean, yeah, Arendelle's great. You you could go down the list of really beautiful settings in Disney cinematic history. And if we're talking specifically about the animation, I just can't think of one that did it better than this. No, and I think it's important, too, because naturally your first question is how do all of these animals cohabitate? Forget the predator-prey thing, just strictly based on the ecology of everything. You know, you, you a polar bear can't be in the desert. So this was the perfect way to blend it all together, get all of these animals existing in their natural habitats and make it work. And the other thing that they do, and we'll discuss this more as the film goes on, they do a really great job here because it's very subtle. Because you just pointed it out. How does how does a polar bear live in the desert? How would a and then conversely, how would a camel live in the Arctic? 
they make it functional, but it also serves to set up the separation. Because it's obviously a very diverse habitat. It's a very diverse city. And they hit on a lot of social questions in this movie. So ahead of its time. Very much ahead of its time. So I think that what this does, and it doesn't get its appreciation upon the first couple of viewings. I don't think it's until you've seen the movie a few different times, or a few times, I should say, that you start to pick up on, wow, they really do start laying the groundwork for lines such as, well, isn't there an ice cream parlor in your part of town? Why did you have to come to my part of town? You know what I'm saying? Like, they do it in a way that I think sets up the film, but it's not overly offensive exactly. at the same time. I actually, I shouldn't say ahead of its time. This film was asking all the right questions. Nobody was paying attention. Yeah, we're going to put a pin in that. We'll get to it in a few minutes. Um, I love that. To piggyback on that, they they drop the fox away spray very early on. That right. Judy's parents give it to her in that she's going to leave without it to go report on her first day. But then she opens her apartment door and she takes it just in case. So as as much as she thinks that everybody deserves a chance and all animals can be good, there's still that little bit of doubt in her head. And I think that that's a very important character moment in this film. I completely agree. That's the brilliance of this movie is that they take such a small moment, but it plays right into the hand of the bigger picture. We get into her first meeting with the rest of the department. We get introduced to Chief Bogo, who doesn't take her seriously and immediately says, I didn't choose to have you here. I didn't want you here. You're a meter maid, and that's it. So she takes that opportunity to say, I'm not going to... He says, I want 100 tickets from you at the end of the day. And she's like, I'm going to do 200 before noon. And she sort of uses being a bunny rabbit to her advantage because she can hear the meters going off from a further distance. She can get to them very quickly, and she is able to get to 200, up to include, up to and including giving herself a parking ticket because she let her own meter run out. And I think that that's also a very important scene for her because you see that ultimately it's not that she's naive per se. She's just devastatingly honest. The first ticket that she issues I think it was for $25 so she would have racked up almost five grand with 200 tickets but this is what I love about this film is that like you should find it so annoying that that you know by this point she said it a million times I'm gonna be a cop and I'm gonna defy the odds and even though I'm a bunny I'm gonna follow through But because the scene is so funny and we've seen her when she was training use her size to her advantage once she figured out what worked for her, she's doing that again here. I also think that it doesn't quite get old because she continues to be knocked down, which you know is going to happen, all right? There is a formula, and you've seen it a million times, and nobody's going to believe. I could tell you before I even saw this movie, nobody's going to believe in her, and she's going to have to win them over, and she's going to defy the odds, and they will love her at the end, and guess what? Yes, that is exactly what happens. But in spite of the fact that it follows that formula... Between the way the film is written, between, you know, the dialogue between the characters, the actors and actresses in the film, it doesn't quite matter that you've seen it before. It just does it so well. 
And I think that that's probably, other than the world building, I think that's the biggest compliment you can pay to this movie is you have seen this a million times. And yet somehow this one does it better than a lot of the other ones that came before it or came after it. Even with Nick's character, you kind of know what you're going to get and it's seemingly predictable, but it's not. I love everything about Nick right off the rip. I think he's so engaging. I think the popsicle operation is absolutely hysterical. And this is where this film gets a lot of points with the world building is that him and Finnick have this entire system worked out. It's totally foolproof. And this is what they do every single day until Judy busts them. Yeah, I think... Didn't they total, he has made over a million dollars in his lifetime tax-free doing this. Yeah. It's pretty wild. But it also sets the table very early that we are out here to try and break stereotypes. And it starts with that scene in the ice cream shop where he's trying to buy the jumbo pop and the elephants are saying, you can go to your part of town to go buy that. And it's 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 a it's a cold splash of water early into a movie that's otherwise sort of lighthearted and fun because you're watching a bunny cop. You know what I'm saying? Like, on the surface, this is not something you think you're going to have to deal with in a film. And I give Disney a lot of credit for kind of going for it. This had the potential, I think, to really blow up in their face. Because a lot of people don't want to take a look at that. You know, they don't want to look in the mirror. And they don't want to address some of these social problems that we are now seeing that were handled in in 2020 and continue to be handled now. And that's where the movie's ahead of its time. But I think, again, it's the screenwriting. I'm not going to say this again because I'm now getting tired of repeating myself. So this is the last time I'm going to say this. This is how damn good the screenwriting is. That they were able to tackle everything that they tackled in this movie. And they did it well. They did it very, very well. And I think that anybody that saw this movie... Obviously, you're happy with Judy and you're happy for Judy after it ends. But I think this movie left adults asking a lot of questions. And I think it led to children asking a lot of the right questions. It was just so well done. And and from here, it takes off for the rest of the movie. Those really are the best kinds of films. Really, the best pieces of art that are able to pose the questions and give that hard look in the mirror as a metaphor without being so heavy-handed and make you think about it for yourself instead of coming off as preachy. And what I love about these scenes too is that it's not just, you know, the hard look in the mirror. It's not just the social commentary. It's also just as important for Judy's character because she's shaking everybody down to get what she needs. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm surprised about is how many times, I'm not even going to say in a year, how many times in a week do you see some meme talking about how The Simpsons has the ability to predict the future? Happens constantly. And South Park. And South Park. 
I not I mean, obviously, it could not have possibly been a direct prediction, but I'm surprised if you really think about it, that nobody has tied this movie to what we saw in the year 2020. Yeah, because in this movie, what do they I mean, what what do they tackle here? They tackle injustices. They tackle rallies. Quarantines are brought up. You know things that are infecting people, and you and you can't quite figure out what it is or why. The the media spin. I mean, when Judy's in that press conference and she's like, "No, no, no, I'm just trying to get to my friend." When she's trying to get to Nick, and they're like, "We can't trust our friends. Our friends will kill us now." Like it's it. I mean, this movie kind of does summarize 2020 very very well, whether indirectly or not. No, it's true. Like, you know, you notice the parallels as you're watching. But now that we're actually sitting here banging it out, like, yeah, it, it was. I mean, we were watching it this week and I was like, just when I thought it was over <laughs> <laughs> and now we're back. But seriously, it, it's amazing to me when you look at this or Simpsons or a South Park, how many times it, it, it's it's a concept. Perhaps it's done in jest. But how many times it comes out to to be true, or or it, it kind of like manifests itself into reality? I can't get over how many times in retrospect you see stuff like this happen. No, and then the film does such a great job of it balancing itself out because in these next couple of scenes, once Judy convinces Nick to help her, they go on this scavenger hunt of yeah. sorts. And these secondary characters are what make this movie. Um, I think the Godfather spoof, I mean, they're overdone in almost everything now. But what I am very surprised at is how much they got away with. Because you're almost going line for line. It's it's not just... The icing is very funny. And that, yeah. that's what makes it different. But, I mean, usually you spoof the line of the offer you can't refuse, right? This whole thing with you come to me and my daughter's wedding, I'm not even going to try to do the Brando, but it it feels like such a blatant ripoff. And we have roasted movies that do this. We've roasted them. Yeah, I was just kind of surprised at Disney for that because it's not really satirical. It's kind of a parody, but there's there's a lot of blatant ripping off here. Yeah, but... In spite of it, I think that because the rest of the movie is so good and I think that the way they sort of handle it in this case with the icing is so unique and different and the fact that they use it as a jumping off point for now we're going to find out more about Otterton because now Mr. Big and obviously the, the, the visual of Mr. Big as an Arctic shrew is hysterical when he's surrounded by these polar bears, but the fact that they use it as a jumping off point to give us more information and it's more evidence that we need to try and track down Otterton, it's unique enough where it works. Right, and I do love that we get to play along with Judy too and that we have just as much information as she does and it's just as much on us as the audience to try and figure it out. Mm -hmm. Then you get that great scene with the yoga where much like with the elephants in the ice cream shop, this is like almost Disney poking fun at itself, right? Because we've humanized these animals. You don't really think twice that they're wearing clothes because 
it's a fun part of their character. Obviously, Judy needs her uniform, but even Nick's Hawaiian shirt sort of lends very well to his character. Yeah. But it is something that, like, when you think back to the beginning, Snow White, these animals are helping her clean the house. Cinderella, the animals helped her. You don't really think about it because... You want your princess to win, but like, yes, there's still animals. Is a deer rubbing its butt to to clean a dish? Is that the most sanitary thing? And now here in 2016, they brought it entirely full circle where we see these animals personified. And then they this movie flips it on its, its head again. It's brilliant. Yeah, because they're not doing anything more than being animals. But those yoga poses, though. <laughs> That's what it is. It's the visual comedy of the yoga poses that are just out of this world. Much like the next scene with the DMV. Which Best it, scene ever. It's the Yes. It is the most accurate depiction of anything in the history of cinema. I'm sorry, but listen. We've watched the Titanic sink. Uh, in a film, we've watched the assassination an assassination of Kennedy in a film. Yet, to me, the most accurate depiction of anything in history are the sloths working at the DMV. It's the most relatable thing that they could have done. There is nothing about this that isn't accurate or hilarious. I love Flash. I love everything about this scene. I also love that they cast Kristen Bell as Priscilla, who he's telling the joke to because she yes. loves sloths. So, I mean, of course, I'm sure Disney knew that after after what she did for Frozen. So I'm glad that they threw her this one. And I love that it's one of the few times you really see Judy break down. Yes. Like, they have to... I'm not going to say humanize because she's not. Normalize. You have to normalize her because... Even the best of people walk into the DMV and have no hope. <laughs> and, and if you walk in with the best of intent, you are destroyed the second you walk in the door. No, that's, that's the type of day where it's like you can't do it before anything else. You have to take the day off from work, go do your thing with the DMV, and then plan on hitting up the bar after that. Yeah, you go to the, the DMV. the only way you're getting through. I have gone to the, to the DMV to literally take a new picture for my license and have been there for four hours to take a picture i had to go once and this was just poor planning on my part i knew my license was going to expire but the only day that i had off was my birthday so i had to go on my birthday it was the worst birthday ever there are yeah that's a horrible gift oh you ch well, I was going to say you chose that, but it sounds like you didn't have a choice. No, I didn't. I would have just called out sick to work that day. I would have used a sick day, gotten paid, and just gone to the DMV and enjoyed my birthday. If it had been me. I hope nobody from work is listening to this. There are so many layers to this film. And what's amazing is that it never, ever gets convoluted. And... I say that from an adult's perspective, but I also think that as a kid, you could follow what's happening in this movie and not get lost or confused. Agreed. So you really start to see it unfold as they get more and more uh, pieces of evidence here. And I love when they do a great job, I think, 
after you get to the asylum, of sort of throwing you as the viewer and also throwing Judy and Nick off with this whole Lionheart thing. And it works twofold because the mayor, he's not a sketchy character. So you're certainly not expecting him to be involved, especially when he does work so closely with the police force. So that's a twist in and of itself. But the other thing that they're doing this whole time is they are doing such an amazing job of developing Bellwether as this nervous wreck assistant. You never see it coming. And then, you know, that's obviously later towards the end of the film. But now everything starts to unravel is that the mayor is not only accused, but he's also a predator. So he knows that this is not going to bode well for him no matter what. Then you've got the escalated attacks on the rest of these animals. The us versus them mentality breaks wide open. And then we get to the press conference and Judy makes things even worse for both herself and for the community. Right, because all she's doing is stating the facts of the case. But because she's not ever done a press conference before, she sort of gives too much information. But that's also where that media spin comes from. Inst- you know, she's saying, well, it's, it's the biology of the predator initially was this. They, it could be something that's in their DNA. We're still trying to figure it out. And the media blows it up into this huge panic it's what I referenced before with Nick storms off after they have an argument. She goes to stop him. They say, well, we can't trust our friends anymore. And that's the next headline that they run with. So that causes a stir. And that's what leads to rallies and everything else. Because Gazelle, high, uh, she has a rally. And it, that it, it's that 90-10 thing. Because you have 90% of the population are prey and 10% are predator. So... That's where that us against them thing really starts to pick up steam. But it all happens here. You're right from the press conference. And that's where Judy starts to really question herself because she no longer sees the good in what she did in in retrieving these 14 mammals and, and trying to get them back home. All she sees is the chaos now. Well, it's not just that. It's that she hurt someone who was close to her because she realized that she jumped to a conclusion too. And as much as her, her eyes are focused on the bigger picture and she thinks that she's doing good, it played into what we were talking about before. She grabbed that Fox spray just in case and Nick calls it out and he makes a move and, and she played right into the stereotype and she realized that she's no better than anyone else that she's trying to prove wrong. And I think that's, such a great element too is that she goes on the downward spiral and really starts questioning herself which yeah. you know like this film like the events of 2020 that is what is supposed to happen right and in this case it actually does happen and you needed to get her out of the city you needed to get her back on the farm now this is the only portion of the film where I actually have a problem we get her back to the carrot farm. And the whole time, they're talking about night howlers. I mentioned it earlier. Well, what they think, this is Judy and Nick, what they think the night howlers are are the wolves 
that were sort of protecting the asylum. They were sort of the security guards at Cliffside. That and they they took the Jaguar away. When they were right. looking at the traffic cameras, the Jaguar was the next one to turn savage. He attacked Nick and Judy. They get, they got away, and she had him handcuffed to a pole. And then they went and they looked back at the cameras, and they saw him being hauled off in a car by so, the night who they thought were the night howlers. We get back to the farm, and her father has a moment where he turns. He's in a conversation with Judy, and he turns and he goes, "You kids, get out of there." I don't want them playing over there. I don't want them touching those night howlers. And what? What's that? Oh, they're a flower, and sometimes when an animal touches them, they can go crazy. And we had a brother or a cousin or whoever it was that bit Judy's mother, and I'd say that was savage. You have a gouge in your arm. And that's when Judy has this prey aha moment, aha moment of prey can go and become savage. What I don't understand here is you'd think that she would have known this before because she grew up on this farm. You would imagine that her parents have had, as he says, I I have to tell the little ones, don't play over here, which means you've been told at some point in your life you shouldn't be over here. Well, she did know. In the first scene where she's, you know, her first big chase with the weasel, um, when she recovers the bag, Bogo opens it up and he's like, you did all of this for a bunch of onions from the florist. And she's like, actually, those aren't onions. And she gives the, you know, the scientific, Latin yeah. scientific name, whatever. Um, and he cuts her off. So I think, you know, she got distracted and she wasn't really thinking about it. So obviously she's not going to put all the pieces together in that moment. But I think that she knew what the official name of the plant was. She never knew the nickname. So I can give that a pass. I actually, I still sometimes bump on the scene before with the press conference. I know you need it for story. Obviously you need to get her back home to the farm you know, and she does her soul searching, but you need to get her back there so that she can put all of those pieces together, which she couldn't do without the help of her parents. But I just get stuck on sometimes that Bogo even let her talk. And I know that that was sort of the politics of the thing because she was the first bunny cop and Bellwether is in his ear and yeah, like, we have to get her up there. It. But it's like, how do you let her say these things? Because, I mean, it but, works story right. You you do need that jumping off point. But if we're talking about the reality of the situation, that's the only part that sort of pulls me out of it. I feel like it. he let her talk because City Hall was going to make her talk. Right. Didn't she didn't Bellwether say she was a part of the Mammal Initiative project in hiring a more uh, diverse, sort of speak, um, crew of police officers and and that's when they want her to be the face of the ZPD to show that this initiative is working and they've got this this great police officer so I guess I, I guess that's why he let her do it because I don't think I don't think Bogo had much of a choice but to let her speak I I sometimes wonder too because we know Bogo doesn't like her I'm kind of also wondering if he wanted her to put her foot in her mouth yeah and in a roundabout way she sort of does because that was sort of the bet, right? Is right. that she 
she bet her career on finding out what happened to Emma Goddard in, in, in 48 hours. And he right. was ready to let her go. And But she said that was the thing. That was the bet, and and she did it, though. That's the thing. Like, it wasn't, you have to find an antidote and tell me why it's happening. It was find the otter, and she did that. Not just him, but the other, you know, all 14 that went missing. But back to this scene at the farm. Here's where I want to I touch on something you just said. In the scene with the moldy onions, and she knows, no, this is exactly what it is. You're establishing early on that she is very smart, but she's going to take what she learned at the farm and use it to her advantage. Right. If this flower is that powerful, if it's that dangerous, this would be the equivalent of not knowing what poison ivy is. If if it's going to have that sort of effect on you, how do you not know? Here's I was kind of thinking about this earlier today. How could they have done this where perhaps they could have set up that she needed her parents' help because she seems to know way too much where she wouldn't need her parents' help otherwise. If they would have rewound back to the beginning of the movie where she's going on and on and on as a child to her parents about, I'm going to be a police officer, and she could have had her head in the clouds daydreaming, and she's about to step on one of these night howlers. Mm. Her father could have just pulled her away and said, watch where you're going. These are poisonous. And she could have, okay, dad, but I'm going to be in Zootopia, you know, and like gone on and on and sort of brushed it off. And then all these years later, her, you know, her father could say that and she'd be like, well, what do you, uh, yeah, I told you they were poisonous. I told, I tried telling you this when you were a kid, you wouldn't listen. That's to me how you could have planted it early gotten her back to the farm, and still accomplished getting the help of her parents. When you have somebody that is so well-informed about something, it's almost impossible to me that she would not have been able to hit on this on her own. Right. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, they're saying the night howler, the night howler. If the night howler flower is so dangerous to the point where your father has it on his farm to keep pests away... And goes out of his way to tell his children, don't touch it. How do you not know what it is? Right. And that's something that maybe she would know from growing up on the farm, but everybody else in the city wouldn't because they're from the city. And that's where she has the key to unlock everything. Think about people that go to the grocery store down the road. They know nothing about agriculture. They just know to go get it at Stop and Shop. You could have played into that here. Right. My bigger issue with the scene, too, is I get what they were trying to do with bringing Gideon Gray back and giving him his redemption and giving the parents the moment of, well, you taught us something is is not to be prejudiced. And they're working with him now. But that's not a prejudice. He slashed your daughter's face open. How are you still on speaking terms with this guy? Yeah, it's it's that, a stretch. That's not about the bigger picture. It's about no, he did something. He did you dirty. It's a stretch. I think for the purpose of showing the world that Judy is doing the right thing and showing that she is making a difference, she needed that moment for herself. It's a stretch, but I get it. To me, that's less egregious than this whole night howler thing and having no idea what they were. Right, and that she rubbed off on her parents. Okay. I'll give you that one. I forgot the Breaking Bad reference, which is crazy because 
when we saw the film in in the movies, when we went to the theater, and they have the scene in the train car where the guy's got the hazmat suit on and all the flowers are blue, I'm tapping on you going, it's a Breaking Bad reference, it's a Breaking Bad reference. And then when he gets the other two guys that show up with his coffee and they knock on the door and he goes, who is it? They go, it's Walter and Jesse. Walter. I forgot this entire thing existed until this week. I did too. And that that's not to say that Breaking Bad is any less popular than it was because that went to Netflix after who knows where it's streaming now. But, you know, people are still discovering that show. That's not to say it doesn't land or that I don't think it makes it feel dated in any way, especially to, you know, he's in the yellow suit. Those yellow suits are going to be tied to Breaking Bad forever. Yeah. It's instantly recognizable. Anytime you have somebody in a yellow suit in a lab working on anything that's blue, you're going to think about Breaking Bad. I still think this is infinitely better than the Godfather scene, though. There they blatantly ripped it off. Here, you know, it's just kind of a wink and a nod. And, okay, so where the Godfather scene, they try to make it different with the icing. Here, I wasn't expecting for that train to take off. I wasn't expecting it to take off or explode. I love that Nick has the evidence that he was able to get it off of the train and Disney does this very well where you have a character and I and I went back to watch like did we miss it did they miss it where does he take this thing from do we actually see you never see his left hand when they jump off of the train and as they are tumbling and rolling on that on that platform in the station the way that it's animated and the way they cut around it you never ever see his left not even his left hand you hardly ever see his left arm so they really do a good job in hiding that he got this thing off the train as well as the blueberry switch because you know that he was all excited that she's got them from the farm after they reconcile he starts eating them he does carefully tuck some away in his pocket and then when judy's leg gets cut he bandages her up with what he was holding them in so you did have a few seconds where he could have switched out the um, the, the blueberry with the Breaking Bad blue. Yeah. I love that, that they pulled that off. I love the bellwether twist. Because as you pointed out earlier, you don't see it coming. I feel that they actually... I thought this was a better twist, uh, twist than Hans of the Southern Isle. Absolutely. Because I think... Now, they do it great. You you really don't see it coming in Frozen, but as you watch Frozen more and more, perhaps because you know it's coming, you kind of start tying things in. But there are very subtle scenes. There are subtle moments in Frozen where the animation, even you know, when, when they animate his face, when they give him an expression, you kind of look back on it after a few viewings and go, ah, see, we should have known something was off. Look at his temperament here. That never happens with Bellwether. Right. And because in Frozen, they joke about how can you how do you know it's your true love when you just met? And there's always that seed of doubt with Hans here, especially because they lean into us little guys got to look out for each other and the female empowerment aspect. You never see it coming. And the setup is even more brilliant because they have. They, they fake the attack on Nick that he gets shot and he's going to go savage. And they bring it back full circle to the play in the beginning where she fakes her own death. Mm-hmm. 
Love the full circle moment. Let me ask you a question because you just brought up the little guys got to stick together, the female empowerment. So with that in mind, what double cross hurts more as the viewer, Hans or Bellwether? Oh, Bellwether. And I don't think I don't think that's just me being biased because I am a female. I think it's because, like I said, they plant enough doubt with Hans. Even though you don't know that you can't trust him, it's the whole, wow, this is happening kind of fast and they're going to get married already. And you you hurt for Anna, but at the same time, it's like, come on, Anna. How, how were you that naive? Here, because... You know, and it's just the visual, too. She's working for this giant lion who's mistreating her. And that has nothing to do with him being a predator. It, it's just the way that they set Bellwether up. She's she's so job fearing and you can tell she's overworked and she's stuck in this little office because they do go visit her to look at the traffic cameras. And she's in the office by the boiler. We've seen it a million times. Exactly. You just think she's a secondary character and she's a good sidekick to Judy when she needs her. And, and you never think that, that it's going to go beyond that. I agree. I think this hurts worse, but I think the initial sting is worse in Frozen because Hans is leaning in to kiss her and says, if there was only anybody that actually loved you. Like, that that line within itself, I think, is more hurtful. It, it's more of that initial sting. This, though, I agree with you, I think is far worse for all the reasons you just mentioned. That's true. I forget about that one line. That is rough. But in both cases, they are both prepared to let their girl die. Mm-hmm. So, we get to the end of the film. Nick becomes a cop. That's fine. He's smart enough. He's obviously smart enough. I love that we get Flash one more time. Definitely. All right. I w- let's start talking about these characters now because we've we've kind of talked about everything else, but I, I think it's important that we start to really dissect these characters because this sounds so stupid when I say they're so important. Of course they're important. The film doesn't exist without them. But... I think I think they're relevant. I think they're substantial. I think there's so much substance behind all of them, and I think that the subject matter of the film is what lends itself to that. But I said it before. The subject matter and the writing is great, but ultimately it's the talent of the film that really make it work. It's an incredible cast, and I think what also needs to be said is kudos to Disney for having such fully developed char- characters when the cast is gigantic. It's a yes, it's a huge cast. It's a huge cast. And and the fact that you could flesh them all out and, and to do so quickly without it feeling rushed. Right. That's that's the most important thing. Because I think the pacing of this film is incredible. It throughout. is. Jennifer Goodwin plays Judy Hopps, and in looking at this now, she did not voice the child. No, Judy. she didn't. Um a lot of people know her from Once Upon a Time. I said this to you earlier this week. For some reason, I kept thinking this was Amy Poehler and that Amy Poehler had two Disney films. I don't know why I, I forgot I still this. really don't know where you're getting that from. I don't know. But I loved Jennifer Goodwin on Once Upon a Time until Once Upon a Time became a little too played out. Um, you want to talk about something that became jagged and was all over the place. That's what Once Upon a Time be- became. But I loved her in that. And I think she's even better in this. I would agree. She does remind me of Kristen Bell in that regard, where it's like you have 
a great actress and it also translates over to the voice and they give a solid voice performance but they also just give you that little bit of Disney sparkle and that you know that little bit of like wistfulness in their voice when they really want something I think that she did that that you know I have big dreams and I'm going after them she gave it that almost princess-like quality um and she makes judy very believable i think jason bateman makes nick wild believable i think he makes this movie you know i've always really liked jason bateman a lot you know i've loved his demeanor i love his dry sarcastic humor i loved him in horrible bosses i thought that was something that I th- I thought it was a project that really showcased him very well. And I thought that he brought a lot of that humor here. To me, it's it, it's not until Ozark that you really saw what Jason Bateman could do. Right. And in a way, even though these two characters could not be more different in their overall demeanor, I can see a lot of Nick Wilde in Ozark just with the lie cheat and steal and I don't care who it affects I'm in it for me the wheels constantly turning always thinking it it's just so perfect I I love the character but I really think it's just one of those perfect marriages of perfect casting on a great character I toyed with the idea of saying mm, maybe I would have liked to see what Matthew McConaughey could have done. Um, but I think o- that's only because of the Hawaiian shirt and that like I'm going to coast through life quality. McConaughey would have nailed that, but I don't think that he would have gotten quite that sarcasm and that that sly foxness that Jason Bateman gives him. Um, this film was actually supposed to be Nick centric. It was supposed to, he was supposed to be our main character, but he didn't test well with the early audiences and they needed something to make this more, a little bit more family friendly and soften it. And that's why they went with Judy. She was in the film, but people were responding more to her and that's why they flipped it. I think that, well, the the movie made over a billion dollars at the box office and has become a smash and a favorite of Disney fans. So we know it was the right decision, but I would agree with that because as much as I love Nick and I think he I think he ties the movie together, I'm not sure I'm not sure the movie is as endearing if the movie's about him. It's less endearing and the prey predator stuff is not going to hit as hard. Right. Like it kind of feels obvious that he would not be the lead, the main character, so it's sort of a surprise that they kind of went that way. I'm also wondering like what that would have really done for the story. Like I don't think the the original idea was for him pursuing a career as a cop, but it it would change everything about it. Mhm. Idris Elba plays Chief Bogo. Different seeing Idris Elba in a comedic role. But he pulls it off. Ugh, there is not enough of those smooth, velvety tones throughout this movie. Yeah, I I love him in everything that he's in. I don't think they've announced the next James Bond. I know that he was in the running for a long time. I think he said he's not going to do it. But I would love to see what he could do with that character. 
Um, and I just think he's perfect in this film, especially when, and it's not even him, the animation where he's got the gazelle the app, app on yep. and he's dancing on yeah. the phone. Um, I love that. I love that they soften him with that. Yeah, and I would have rather seen that as his, not weak point, but I like that they use that to soften him as opposed to him really being won over by Judy um, and going against sort of everything that he stood for this entire time. That That's really my my one critique. I mean, you don't need much more from Bogo as a character, but just because of the performance and those moments of softness, I would have liked to see more of him. Mm-hmm. Speaking of this app, we have to talk about Clawhauser, Officer Clawhauser. He's the first person you see at the ZPD, voiced by Nate Torrance. He is just fantastic comic relief. His giddiness when it comes to Gazelle, just his overall demeanor is so funny and so lighthearted and actually then it makes what happens later on in the film that much worse when they move him down into records because they don't want a predator to be the first thing you see at a police department. Um, I thought this character is a lot of fun. I think they did a great job setting him up. He was funny without being too much, and it paid off when they moved him downstairs. And, and, and actually, it paid off again when they moved him back to the desk after they figured out that it was these night howler flowers that were causing the problems. I agree. He's such a great character, and it makes that scene all the more difficult to stomach. Um, obviously, you know, Judy's sort of developed a friendship with him, but again, that's something that makes her question herself when she has to face the reality of who she hurt by saying what she said. Mm-hmm. We have J.K. Simmons as Mayor Lionheart. I wish we would have had more of him because J.K. Simmons is just incredible at everything that he's in. Small role, probably banged out all of his lines in an afternoon. I mean, that's how little he's in the film. But I thought he did a good job. I wish there would have been a little bit more of him. But that's less about the character and that's more about the actor. Then you've got some smaller roles by bigger names. You've got Octavia Spencer as Mrs. Otterton. Tommy Chong as the Yaks, which I love. Um, And then this is one of my favorite things ever. Alan Tudyk as Duke Weaselton. Weaselton. Yeah. He was both voices. Yeah. In Frozen and this. So I love that now he's Weaselton here. And um, I also want to talk about um, Jenny Slate, who voices Bellwether. Uh, I think she was fantastic. Yeah, I think she was really good. I mean, you basically just found a voice to match the character, but she does such a good job of being that soft, sort of mousy kind of character. The type of that you could trust you never think is going to stab you in the back, so when she does... um, it hurts even more. And the way that she presents it at the end, how self-righteous she is. Um, yeah, I thought Jenny Slate did a really nice job here as well. Yeah, she balanced both both aspects of the character really well. So, you, oh, we also have Shakira. Okay, so Shakira, oh, same thing, probably banged out her lines in two hours. Known more for the song than for the character Gazelle, 
but for her limited lines, I thought she was fine. Um, and she did have some input with her character, too, in the design and the outfit. And she wanted her to be a little bit more curvy than they initially pitched her. So she did She did contribute. She was, she was Shakira about it. Exactly. If, if you saw the Super Bowl halftime show a couple of years ago, you know what I mean when I say she just had to be Shakira about it a little bit. So it works. I like Shakira. I, people forget. I mean, she did her first English album. She wrote it using a dictionary a, or a, a Spanish to English translation yeah. book. I mean, she doesn't get enough credit because now she's known for things like the Super Bowl performance. But right. she's very talented. That's oh, yeah. Laundry Service is still one of my favorite albums. Yeah. She's got a great voice. Uber talented. No doubt about it. All right. So final thoughts. Um... I mean, listen, the, the movie is a borderline masterpiece. I, I think it completely holds up. I think it will always hold up. I think the movie's always going to be timely. I think it's a great story with great cast, great characters, great world building. The only reason why I don't give it perfect marks, as dumb as this sounds, because it, you, you have to basically, well, of course, you got to be a perfect movie to get a perfect mark, but I don't hand them out often. Okay. Is it the flowers thing? Yes. Oh my god. You you may you, you you set her up too many times. Go back to the farm, go back to where you came from, go back to being a farmer, and then she has this agricultural knowledge where she's giving you the scientific term for the onion, although it's not really an onion and I'm going to tell you why. And the most obvious thing the thing that could have solved and stopped this from the start, she has no concept of it. Yeah, that's what that's what separates this from other films like Tangled, Mary Poppins, uh, Toy Story. Yeah, that that to me is why I don't give the film perfect marks. This is like what destroys Coco for you because of one line. Yeah. Yep. Don't pick sides. Pick my side. In sequential order. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna die on that hill, and then and then I'll have to come visit you over the bridge of marigolds. But I will <laughs> die on that hill. Um. Yeah, I I agree. I this is as close to perfect as you can get, but there are some things that I I mean I nitpicked in the beginning. It's not that it would have been any better or worse if they had done her childhood as a flashback or shown more or less of the training montage. I mean, that's, that's really minutia and they're, they're all things that I can overlook. Um, I think it's an incredible story. I love that they give us, you know, sort of the cat and mouse and the whodunit elements of, of any great mystery. Uh, and they support it with, really amazing characters this film has a great cast it's got incredible world building it's got rewatchability and i honestly have trouble finding really big flaws with it i i actually do kind of retract my earlier statement it's not kind of perfect it is perfect i i would give this one perfect marks um does it hold up yes does it need a sequel? That I don't know about because I feel like these characters are so rich you could do a lot with them. 
so I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't know that I want to see a sequel of the film, but if they were to do like, even if they didn't use Judy and Nick, I mean, I would want to see more of Judy and Nick. Um, but just if they stayed within this police force and, and they maybe did like a Disney plus series and we got to explore more of the worlds of Zootopia and all these little, you know, go into Rodentia and, and go more into Tundra town and all, and the rainforest and, and really go into this world that they built and go deeper into the things that we didn't get to see. I'd be all for it. I would agree with you there. I don't want to see a sequel in film. I think we've left them in a good spot. I think we've told a complete story. I think they've all accomplished what they came here to do. If you do a sequel, it's because money. Right. What I would love to see, actually, is if you wanted to spin off into a Disney Plus, you could kind of toe the line again and do something that a kid's going to love because it's animals and it's Zootopia, so you it's something you're familiar with, but there's also something a little bit there for the parents. If they sort of did, with the proper screenwriting, which we know they have here, if they kind of did like a SVU kind of there you go. spoofy show for Disney Plus where you just have maybe a new cast and maybe you have your... Bogo, your Judy, your Nick, they come in and do cameos, but you maybe introduce new characters to go and solve crimes in Zootopia. I would prefer that before a Zootopia 2 on a movie screen. Or even like a 21 Jump Street where like you get the Nick and Judy cameo and they're they're setting up their new recruits and right, like you said, do it with a different cast. But I feel like there's still so much that you can do within this world. And we want to know what you have to say. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. What do you think of Zootopia? Do you want to see a sequel? Do you think it's better made for television at this point if they continue to expand upon this universe? Please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We got news coming up as well as a contest winner. But first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. Or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. Whether you were looking for custom stationery, perhaps custom invitations, or you need that little Disney touch, that little Disney fix in your house, home decor, more stationery, whatever it is you're looking for, Kelly has you covered, and the best part is... Monoreal listeners get a discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to check them out at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. Disney taking home a little bit of hardware at the Golden Globes this past weekend, specifically Soul. It wins Best Animated Feature and Best Score, quite honestly, I'm not really surprised by either of those awards. No, definitely well-deserved. And I don't care what anyone says about the 
low numbers as far as the nomination pool goes. Soul deserves every accolade that it's getting. Yeah, I think if it had been in a regular year where you had a full slate of theatrical releases, I, I think the movie was that good where it still would have cleaned up. I agree. I think it would have been given a little bit of tough competition, but it's still a great movie and it definitely stands on its own. We also got a trailer for Luca that's coming out June of 2021. The more I see, the more I get excited. I'm I'm still not 100% sure what exactly this film is about, but I think it has the potential to just be one of these films that aesthetically blows you away. I think this is going to be the Amalfi Coast version of Coco, which I am very excited for. We also got some drops on Disney Plus coming up. Some this week, some are on their way. We got Myth, A Frozen Tale. That came out now. That's sort of a... I'm just going to say, it's kind of weird. So it's it, it was something that was meant to be a VR experience, and they released it on Disney+. Plus. I think if I had to, if I, if I had to, like, categorize it as something, it's like Frozen meets Footloose. I know that sounds weird, but you have to see it. But what did you think of this thing? I like that they released it in such a way that everybody can consume if you're not into VR. I've I've done VR before. It's kind of weird. It's kind of trippy. I, I think I could handle it in this medium. But if it's something that you're not into, of course, for the kiddos, if there's more Olaf content out there, you have to be able to give it to them. We also got a new trailer for the new Mighty Ducks series that is coming out on March 26th. I'm okay. Just prove me wrong. I am not excited about this. I am not excited that the ducks are now the villains. We have very differing opinions when it comes to this. I'm excited for more ducks. I am excited that we got coach Bombay back. I'm excited that we get more Lorelai Gilmore. Yes, I realize that that is not her name in real life. It's Lauren Graham, but I love her, and I'm really happy that she's in this. Um, And I am very much looking forward to some cameos. I hope we get some. I hope that Joshua Jackson comes back. Uh, I hope Keenan comes back. That would be really... Because Keenan's down for whatever. He'll do it. Yeah. If Adam Banks is in the show, he is going to be injured by the end of whatever episode (laughs) he's in. He is the Rick DiPietro... Of the Mighty Ducks. Big Shot, starring John Stamos. We we mentioned it before. He plays a basketball coach. That is coming out on April 16th. This I am excited for. I'm sort of intrigued to see Stamos in this kind of role, but I'm glad he got something on Disney+. We also have Star Wars The Bad Batch coming out on May 4th. High School Musical, The Musical, The Series, Season 2, coming out on May 14th. I think I'm kind of shocking everybody when I say that I am slightly more excited for that news than you are. I think it's two seasons too many. Zenimation Season 2 is coming out on June 11th. If you have not checked out Zenimation, seriously go do yourself a favor. When you need the Disney fix but you also need to bring like your blood pressure down a little bit. It's definitely the best kind of medicine for you. 
The Mysterious Benedict Society is coming out on June 25th. Monsters at Work, July 2nd. I think of everything on this list right now, um, I think that is probably what I am the most excited for. Toss up between that and Mighty Ducks for me. But yeah, this has been a long time coming. That was one of the original titles, I think, that they announced for Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm happy to finally get that one. We're also getting the long-awaited Turner and Hooch series on July 16th, followed by Chippendale Park Life on July 23rd. I'm just excited that we're getting more Chippendale in our lives. I'm excited for that, and more than anything else... Look at that list that you just read. Look at how much content we are getting. People are going back to work. We're getting more television. That makes my heart happy. You know what makes my heart happy? Giving away prizes to listeners who we love. So we've got a really great prize pack going out this week. It's a monoreal radio t-shirt with this outstanding straw charm From the Hidden Mickey Supply Co., it's a four-leaf clover. It's got the Mickey silhouette on it. It's going to look so good for St. Patrick's Day. It's coming up in just a couple of weeks. Thank you to everybody who entered. The winner of our contest is Lisa L. Lisa, congratulations. We will reach out to you on social media to get your shipping information and your T-shirt size. Don't forget, guys, we do run these contests once a month. Keep an eye on the social media for your chance to win. Well, we promised you guys something special for the fifth anniversary of Zootopia, and we are very happy to welcome back to the show a friend of ours, animator Andrew Ford. Andrew, it's been... Well, it's been over a year now, but welcome back to Monoreal Radio. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on again. It's uh, good to talk to you. Now, we're happy happy to talk to you, happy to see you. I have to ask you now, this was the first film that you worked on for Disney. So for the aspiring animator out there, or the person that is looking to get into Disney, how exactly were you able to get onto this project? What is that, what is that process like, getting work with a company like Disney Animation? For me, it was persistence. Um, I certainly didn't get in the first time I applied to Disney. Uh, You have to realize that these are people on the top of their game. And sometimes they only open up like one or two spots a year. Um, So those spots are very hard to come by. For me, it was just kind of maybe like a naive belief that I could do it. And I just I just wanted it so bad. And um, just knowing that the things that you're doing along the way to get there, to get better as an artist. So doing stuff like figure drawing, um, talking to your friends who are artists as well, and just like running your shots by them, the stuff you're working on on your own, doing all those steps will kind of just keep you getting better and keep you growing as an artist. And over time, you're going to get there. It's, it's more about persistence than like natural talent or ability. Um, And for me, it was just, it was a long process but just keeping that goal in mind all the time and keeping applying and keeping applying. And eventually you go from like not hearing anything to like a really nice rejection letter. And then all of a sudden like, Hey, we're, you're getting closer. And then all of a sudden it's like, Hey, we have a spot for you. Like, are you available? So um, just, yeah, staying with it. And um, those spots have to go to someone. So why not you? And now look at you top of your game. (laughs) Uh, The nice thing about Disney is you're always learning. I mean, We've got about 80 to 90 animators right now. Each one of them brings their own special like language to it, their own skills, their own background. We have people 
from all over the world, um, like, you know, Americans, people from Spain that are amazing, Brazil. So everyone brings their own thing. And what is nice about working there is that you can see what they do and try and put their tools in your toolbox. So by looking at their work, talking to them, you're just getting better and better and better. So that's, that's what I enjoy about it is just every day I'm improving. So the first time we got to talk to you was prior to the release of Frozen 2. What would you say is more difficult, trying to animate people as we know them in a place like Arendelle, where it's you know an actual castle where you have a reference to, or creating a fantastical world like Zootopia, where it's animals and the buildings are completely of that world? I think... Well, each has their own challenges. I think people are so in tune to what human beings look like, move like, walk, um, the way their face moves and stuff. I think you have a bit more leeway with, say, animal characters where you're you're kind of combining some human elements, but also putting animal characteristics in. And I think you have a bit more room to experiment. Um, certainly, I wasn't, I didn't work on the first Frozen, but on the second one, there's all these rules already in place. Like, we already know what Elsa looks like when she's walking, when she's singing, what Anna looks like when she laughs. So it's more about like trying to stay within those rules and then expanding those characters like as their journey expands. But a fun thing about a Zootopia type is those characters can kind of go anywhere. And there's so many different ones, like the weasel is going to move way differently than Pops is going to move. So um, yeah, I think there's just more room to explore. We have discussed earlier today that it could be the most accurate depiction of a DMV in the history of anything. How did you achieve the slow motion in that sloth scene? Because it is so incredibly smooth. Yeah, our director, I mean, it was his idea, Byron Howard. Um, I think he probably did the original storyboards for that. And once it got into animation, I know for sure an animator named Darren Butters had like the iconic laughing shot where Flash is just slowly realizes the punchline of the joke. And he pushed it as far as he could. He thought it was going to like re be ridiculous. He added his own frames to it, but almost like the longer it got, just the better it got and more juicy it got. And we're lucky enough to be in a place where the directors will take ideas like that. And if it serves the film in the best way, they'll put it in and they loved it. So from that point on, it's like, okay, we're going to take the time. Um, this sequence is like a special sequence. We, we need that time. So do what you need to do to make it like as funny as possible and kind of like just finding how far you could stretch it um yeah it was fun I, I didn't work on the sequence which in a way is a blessing because I get to see it and kind of be fresh to it so it's it's hilarious to me every time so I love what they did with it are you able to tell us a little bit about um what you used for references as far as the world building because I mean there are things that look so familiar in Zootopia but you guys managed to put such a great spin on it. Um, was there anything specific that you were trying to draw from? I think it's trying to take elements that everyone does know and recognize uh, to keep it grounded, but never make it look like it's human made. Like these things are made by animals for animals. So the scale is really strange. Obviously we reference like Times Square, that type of like area, but to do it in a way that's like, um, it's not like straight up and down architecture. It's more like how an animal would do it. And it's trying to get into that mindset. And I think our character designers and our environment design did like a wonderful job with that. Um, just trying to come at it from an angle where it's not human beings making 
buildings for animals, it would be animals making buildings for themselves. So I think that kind of was the mindset that they got into. That's really interesting. Was it fun sort of leaning into that or does that make it more of a challenge? It's super fun to see that kind of stuff because it's not something we see very often. We're more grounded in real world, um, real world buildings and locations, environments uh, with characters like that, like human characters. So any chance we got, there was a scene that um, early on, it ended up getting cut from the movie, but it was Pops in the police station and she has to go on the computer and do some research. And she's tiny. She's on like a, a rhinoceros or like an elephant's uh, laptop. So she's actually got to jump from key to key to key. So like using those kind of environment cues and stuff was so much fun. Oh, that's really cool. That's clever. Andrew, we discussed earlier how it seems that with the sort of the state of things as they currently are, that this movie is more relevant now than it ever was. So looking back on it now, five years later, how important do you think it is, the themes and and the story that you guys hit on with Zootopia? Uh, yeah, I think it's super relevant. The nice thing about these movies is uh, they are made for all ages. Um, so hopefully people like you can enjoy them on different levels and you can enjoy them at different ages and seeing it say as a child and then again as a teenager and then again like in your 30s you you should be able to take different things from it and that's kind of the goal of these movies and that we're at a time I mean kind of all these movies it's so refreshing and like lovely for us when people come in and bring their everyone in the audience is bringing their own thing to this movie and background and whatever they can take from it and like pull from it is awesome. So if those themes are what people are pulling from it um, today, that's, I mean, kind of icing on the cake. We want you to be able to enjoy it on different levels, like the humor of it, um, the sadnesses of it, and like just um, applying it to life, like as a metaphor, I, I think when we hear that and it's working on those levels, um, yeah, we, we really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're going to stick around, though, because we do have a very special bonus episode of Monoreal Radio that's going to drop tomorrow in conjunction with the release of Raya and the Last Dragon. So Andrew's going to hang around and talk to us about that. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. You can always follow us on our social media, or you can send us an email, monorealradio at gmail.com. And of course, links to all of the social and the podcast are online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.